I would say if you want to sell a distributor, you want to start the process three to five years ahead of when you want to actually be out of the business. Now, obviously, 2020 dealt us all a really strange hand that nobody was really ready for. The first step would just be to get evaluation, just figure out what the company's worth and what a professional is going to tell you is saleable about it. And you need to speak with somebody that's going to give you a realistic picture and not just take you on as a client because they're going to make money off of it. You know, you need a realistic picture of whether this business is saleable. Welcome to the Promo Kitchen Podcast. This is a part of our ongoing series covering mergers and acquisitions and all the different angles from it. Today, we're joined by the fabulous Jamie Watson, who is a partner at Certified Marketing. And Certified Marketing is kind of a cradle-to-grave financial company that specializes in the promotional products industry. And you know Jamie because if anyone needs to know anything regarding finance, she is such a fabulous speaker on it. So we're really excited to have her join us today for the Promo Kitchen Podcast. So welcome, Jamie. Thanks, Kate. And Andrea. Perfect. And Andrea Pereira from Rocket Science Branding is joining us, and she's one of our sous chefs. And we're both very excited about this. So tell us about yourself and how you came to be at Certified Marketing and what Certified Marketing does, because cradle-to-grave financial company sounds a bit ominous. And I know you do way more than, you know, what cradle-to-grave might sound like. Or what does cradle-to-grave mean for anyone who isn't familiar with that? Right. I majored in accounting. And so when I left college, I went straight into auditing. And I knew I didn't want to be in auditing forever, but it was a great place to learn about small businesses and what makes them successful. So that's kind of where I started. And I was always interested in mergers and acquisitions. So transitioning into that made sense. And then I also actually kind of grew up in the promotional products industry. So it was pretty familiar with the industry. My father was involved in Bemrose USA for all of the listeners that would remember Bemrose back in the day. They actually had a group of suppliers that ended up being sold out to Norwood. So I was around the industry and because I was interested in M&A, it just kind of made sense, the natural kind of transition out of auditing, which like I said, was a great place to learn, but it wasn't really what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And then certified marketing, you know, cradle to grave, it just kind of means originally when certified was started by Glenn Holt, one of the things we did was we helped people get into the industry. We helped suppliers kind of understand how to market to distributors. We don't do quite as much of that supplier consulting anymore, although if requested, I'm sure we could probably do so. And then more recently, we've been doing kind of a how to build value in your company, how to increase cash flow, just how to build like a strong, resilient company. Because what I was seeing was we were on the back end, we were doing the mergers and acquisitions. So we were helping people sell companies and there was no ability for us to kind of optimize value for those people on the back end. So now we've kind of shifted a little bit, trying to get in there earlier and work with business owners on building a strong foundation and you know, build a company from the ground up that can be sold for more value in the end and just a better overall, more, even if you're not looking at selling, just building a better, more resilient company. That's so amazing that you're entering the process earlier. So building value isn't really just about buying, selling. It could also be about leaving something for a succession plan, right? Right. 
Building value in a company is really more about establishing best practices and minimizing risk to the company. And in doing so, you're building something that, like I said, is more financially resilient. And then you're also building something because buyers don't like risk, right? So a buyer comes in, if you've minimized that risk and you've built something that is repeatable, transferable, then you're going to be more likely to have success selling it. Awesome. So what are some of the red flags that you look for? When somebody comes to us and they say that they want to sell, there's a lot of red flags, but the first thing we do in our process is evaluation. And the evaluation enables us to really understand the company and dig in there and get a good knowledge of what it's all about because not every supplier or distributor is created equal. So that's the first thing we do. And so if they come out to a value at the end of that process and the owner, that's not what they want for the company, they want more. Well, that's your first red flag. You know, I mean, that's really going to say, you're not ready to sell this. You want to build it into, we help them establish those benchmarks. And you want to build it to this benchmark and then you'll most likely have the value that you're looking for. But as we're going through that process, other red flags are things like high concentration in one customer that decreases, I would say, the quality of earnings and increases risk to the buyer. Another really big red flag is they don't have adequate record keeping. So I can't even tell what's really going on from a financial picture or the narrative that they're telling doesn't match what the financials say. They say, my margins are 40% and their margins are 22%. You know, I mean, that's a big red flag as well. So there really needs to be some consistency with what they're saying and then what the financials say. Another big red flag is when they're overpaying their employees or when they're underpaying the owners, underpaying him or herself. They seem like they're making money, but they're not really making money because they're not paying themselves market value. Gosh, there's just so many. That's just a few. An obvious one is when they take on a large amount of debt and they finance the operations. You really only want long-term debt when you have long-term assets and you want short-term debt for short-term assets like receivables and inventory. So. You know, if you have a lot of long-term debt sitting out there that's not being serviced properly, that's obviously a big red flag too. I think what I'm hearing and seeing out there is 2020 was this big upheaval year for everyone where everyone is kind of like, what's my next step? They're talking right now that we're going to see in the fall the great resignation where people are going from one job to another. And so I imagine business owners aren't immune to that what's my next step process. So If you were to give advice to someone who's just like, I'm at the next step process, where would they start? How do they look at their company and see value? And how do they look at something and see their next step? If you are actually there and you want to completely remove yourself from the company, I would say you're probably getting there a little too late. I mean, you want to start the process earlier. I would say if you want to sell a distributor, you want to start the process three to five years ahead of when you want to actually be out of the business. Now, obviously, 2020 dealt us all a really strange hand that nobody was really ready for. The first step would just be to get evaluation, just figure out what the company's worth and what a professional is going to tell you is saleable about it. And you need to speak with somebody that's going to give you a realistic picture and not just take you on as a client because they're going to make money off of it. You know, you need a realistic picture of whether this business is saleable and how long they would anticipate a buyer is interested in you staying on as well. Because if you don't want to stay on, you know, that needs to be communicated up front. 
You're using the words saleable and valuable, right? Mm -hmm. So would you say that those words have different definitions? Are they totally different words? A company wouldn't be saleable if basically I can't sell it. And I'm honest with people about, I can't sell this company for enough money that you're going to be able to dissolve all your debt. Your better option is going to be bankruptcy, honestly. You know, I mean, that happens. And that's part of the reason we're trying to get in on the front end and avoid those situations for people. And then valuable is just the degree of like how much we're going to be able to get for the company. So it can be saleable, but not all that valuable, you know, or it can be saleable and really valuable. If it's not saleable, then it doesn't really have any value at all. What can people do to make their company more valuable right now? Like I imagine a lot of people, you know, they're not expecting to kick out with everyone else in the fall, but when you go into a company and someone's like, yeah, I'm ready to sell, I'm ready to start working on this. What are the Mm -hmm. things you look for in something that you're just like, oh, thank God you did this. Right. You have to think in the context of mergers and acquisitions, when you're talking about value, buyers are investors. You have to look at it as buyers are investors. And what are investors looking for? Investors are looking for a return on their investment. They're looking for earnings. They're looking for cash flow. They're looking for increased market share. I mean, there are certain aspects to your earnings that are going to make your company more valuable. An upward growth trend is great. You know, now obviously with 2020, I think everybody kind of understands where we're at, but most of the people that I'm working with now are starting to see sales rebound. So if a buyer comes in and they see that sales aren't necessarily rebounding, then that's going to be a red flag for them. You want a nice diversified base, both your sales base, your salesperson base. If you're a distributor, you don't want all of your sales coming from one salesperson, unless that salesperson is also the owner and you're kind of a one-man shop, then there's really no way to avoid that. But then you also want your customer base to be diversified. Like I said, you don't want you know, 80% of your sales with one customer because, I mean, anything's possible at this point. They could be the strongest company in the world and you just never know. I mean, you could do nothing wrong and you could still lose that customer. So diversity is part of the quality of earnings that buyers are looking for. I think developing brand equity versus personal equity is really important. And what I mean by that is your customers are doing business because of the company and the way the company was built, which means the company either has a niche or it's known for its quality and its service or its design capabilities or products, whatever the case may be, and not necessarily just because there's a personal relationship there. One of the things that keeps coming up in our conversations with people is the amount of ego that gets involved here of where selling is a very emotional thing and buying is a very unemotional thing. Where do you encounter the ego here? Or just the emotion part of things? What is your approach to clients who are like, yep, I've got gold here and you have to tell them it's not? Well, a few things. I mean, we always say our clients don't pay us to tell them what they want to hear. They pay us to tell them what they need to hear. I mean, we're accountants, so we tend to be fairly cut and dry with people. What brings value to your company? You know, it's not that you've been in business since 1935. It's not that you drive a cool car, you have a cool showroom. Buyers don't care about that stuff. They just don't. They care about earnings. You have to look at buyers as investors. You know, what would you want if you were investing? Everybody invests to some degree, I think. 
So when you invest your money in something, what do you want back? Well, you want to return, you know, and that's just how you have to look at buyers, that they're investors. And that's just what we tell people. And if it doesn't sit right with them, then they're probably not really ready. If they're not ready to hear that, then they're probably not ready to sell. Do they get ready? Sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes they get ready. Sometimes it takes a couple of times telling them, you know, and sometimes they're just to get to the point where they're like, all right, well, I'm at the age where I really just need to sell it anyway. So, you know, they get there. We tell them what we think the market's going to bring, right? Sometimes it takes them going out to the market and realizing that what we said was reality. That must be hard for someone to think they're top value and then hear the opposite. Do you give them or you're like, here are things you can do to fix this? Sure. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it's a matter of saying, if your numbers aren't resulting in the value that you want, tell me why you think it's worth more. And usually what they end up saying is, well, you know, I just haven't had the time to, you know, go out there and really mine these customers. And I know that there's potential there. Great. You know what? You go and you sell your company and you take a portion of it that's contingency and you're not managing the company anymore. So now you have time to go out and mine those customers and you'll get paid for that value in the form of contingency. But the buyer's not going to pay you for that up front. You can't sell your company based on work you haven't done yet. Jamie, you mentioned that diversity is valuable, having a diverse base of clients. Mm -hmm. A lot of times in the promo industry, I hear about niching down, going deep into a niche because then you can show yourself as the expert. But in the last year, we've really seen the hospitality and tourism industries get hit particularly hard. Mm -hmm. How does this change evaluation? Because you may have a good diversity in terms of a balance spend across your customers. But if they're within an industry that could get hit directly, then all of a sudden it's almost the same risk. What is your advice on that level? Well, I think there's nothing wrong with niching and becoming the expert. But again, it's 2020 hindsight, right? On the hospitality industry, but it's good to have more than one sort of specialty, I think. And just make sure you're consistently evaluating your strengths and then also what threats and risks are out there for you. I mean, the same happened back with the pharmaceutical industry when they started passing a bunch of laws that affected the promo industry. I don't know if that was 2007 or eight or something like that, maybe even 2006. But, you know, just make sure you're constantly keeping your finger on the pulse. If you're specializing in an industry, Make sure you're keeping your finger on the pulse of what's going on in that industry. You know, truly be the expert and understand what's happening there. But, you know, I think it's good to have a niche, but you don't want to be caught up in just that niche. I mean, sure, you can be seen as the expert, but you could be seen as the expert in a few other places as well. Absolutely. And coming out of this pandemic now, there's a lot of talk about inflation coming, interest rates rising. What can we do as business owners to prepare for that? Well, again, I mean, I think you just want to build your company in the in the strongest, most valuable way you can possibly. And if your material prices are going to increase, then your costs are going to increase for your customers. And that's the only thing that you can do. Don't eat that and let it eat into your margin because you're just going to end up losing money on it. You definitely want to make sure you're passing those on as much as you can. 
to your customers. And that goes further to those relationships with those customers and the way the customers view your company. If they view you as an honest, integrity-based company, then they're going to understand. I mean, these aren't hidden issues, right? They're not issues just facing our industry. And I think with a reasonable explanation, people will understand. I am curious about all the people who have reached this point in 2020. And you want to show when you're selling your company, like a certain amount of successful years, and then you hit 2020 and it's just this brutal red spot on your record. Do you think valuations will change with 2020? What do you think is going to happen out in the market there when people look at it? 2020 just meant so much to so many different people. So, but it's an aberration. How do you think people are going to look at 2020? Usually when you see a down year in somebody's financials, there's an explanation that you have to come up with. This is not an explanation anybody has to come up with. It's 2020. If you did well in 2020, then you need to explain it. You know, <laughs> Everybody's going to understand it. Buyers are going to understand it. It's really not about 2020 at this point. It's about 2021. It's about how you've come through it, how you're rebounding. So 2021, 2022, how your company is trending at that point. I think some valuations will be affected more than others. You know, I mean, that's just how it's going to be. Some people took a bigger hit. Some people are not going to rebound as well. I mean, some people just have the wind knocked out of them from 2020. They're just not ready. They don't have the energy to get back into it. So those people are going to take a bigger hit. That must be tough as well. Like considering you could look at a valuation and see a company that was doing 10 million and then they drop down to 5 million is like, they're a cheap company right now to buy at 5 million because you Mm -hmm. know, it could do that. Mm -hmm. We'll be seeing a lot more of those. I don't know. I would think so. And I also think that there's an opportunity there. So it's now it's 5 million. You have a good example. You have a $10 million company and they got knocked down to 5 million. They're not rebounding as hard as they could. Maybe they get purchased. Maybe they sell to a company that's got it figured out, that has more resources that they can really help them. Like, here's what's worked for us. And they can help get that company back to where it was. It's a win-win for everybody. Interesting. So I want to touch on how you've changed the focus of certified marketing, not just on the cradle to grave, the grave side of things is the exit plan, but how do we fix things right now? One of the things that started this look into mergers and acquisitions was Andrea and I talking about growth and scale and how do you grow your company versus scaling it up. With you going in on certified marketing, and you said how to build a strong, resilient company. Two things. What do you tell people to do? And then what are the biggest pitfalls that you see for people where, again, ego can get in the way or having the wind knocked out of you, not wanting to do the hard work, like reach the untapped potential? It's just like building a house and just like maintaining your house. Focus on the foundation, the fundamentals of running a business. What are your policies? What are your procedures? So that you don't make your decisions, your pretty big business decisions in isolation of each other. You make those decisions in the climate that you've created by setting those boundaries. You know, people talk about personal boundary setting. Well, the boundaries need to be set for your business as well. When you're working on making your decisions and working with your salespeople, I mean, salesperson compensation is big on the distributor side. We work with people through some of those issues. It's just really incredibly helpful to have a framework in which to work. So that, like I said, you're able to quantify decisions and you're not making them in isolation of each other. And to that end, 
and this is just an easy thing to do, establish a board of advisors early on in your company. It doesn't have to be people in the industry. Maybe it's just some other small businesses in your area. You know, maybe you have an attorney on there that, you know, you can bounce ideas off of or stuff like that. That's one way to really make sure you're making solid decisions without spending a ton of money. And then you can serve on their board of advisors. You know, maybe they're not even compensated people. So that's just one of the things that I think is really helpful because we don't have all the answers. People ask all kinds of questions and I don't work in these businesses every day. So having that framework and that network of people to you know help you make decisions is important because you're just more thoughtful about everything. You know, in terms of pitfalls, I would say the biggest pitfall is that people aren't sticking to some of those parameters that need to be set. They're selling at really low margins and they're not able to really outsell and make up for some of those low margins. And they get into low cash flow or negative cash flow, and then they try and finance it with debt and they're not really fixing the problem, right? They're just putting a bandaid on it. That's one of the bigger things. Another one, maybe overpaying salespeople. It's really hard to sell a company where the salespeople are overpaid because nobody else is going to pay them what they are earning. And so inevitably, if the salespeople are going to be upset and it's hard to transfer those clients over to the new company, the buyer, when the salespeople are upset. So that's more on the distributor side, but that's just a really big thing. People say, everybody's really well paid and you know, you want to be paying people market value for what they're doing. You don't want to overpay them. Is there a formula for salesperson compensation? Yep. We've spoke on this a few times. I would say the old look at it was 50-50, but that's when we had independent contractors. That model is getting challenged in every arena, especially by the IRS. So really my advice for a smaller company to use independent contractors anymore it's better to have them be employees. And again, really work on getting those customers to be customers, not of the employee salesperson, but of the company itself. So that relationship is with the actual company and the brand and not necessarily just that one person. I'm sure you see instances where folks value their brand in a way that it's really more about the book of business. How do you separate you're not selling your brand, you're selling your book of business, or you have demonstrated brand value, you are selling the full company. Because especially with distributorships, there aren't really many assets, right? I mean, you're talking about desks and chairs and computers. Right. How do you separate those two? You know, to be perfectly honest, it doesn't really matter. You're selling cash flow. That's it. Okay. Yeah, you're selling cash flow. So if that cash flow is repeatable, and that cash flow is transferable, then it doesn't really matter. Now, if those relationships are just with you, you're going to have a hard time, harder time anyway, getting that transition to be more successful. And it's possible and people do it all the time, but it just takes more thoughtfulness in the transition structure. It takes whoever you're choosing to sell your book of business to, you want to be really careful that that person is going to also be compatible with your customers. So at the end of the day, you're selling cash flow and you're selling earnings to that next person, but you just want to make sure that that transition strategy is unified. I mean, that's always going to be the case, but it's more important when you're just selling a book of business. One piece of advice I got once was 
don't make your clients beholden to the salesperson, make it beholden to the company and start separating it. If the salesperson they absolutely love leaves, then you haven't lost them or Mm -hmm. that they don't think of the brand. When they think of that person, they think of that person and sort of stop, you know, because it makes an easier handover. Like, I mean, everyone wants to think of themselves as a brand, but all the storytellers out there, their hearts are breaking when you're like, "Eh, it's cash flow instead of brand. (laughs) I know. Again, the salespeople are a big part of it. And I'm not saying that they're not, but a really good strategy on the distributor side is get the salespeople doing what they're good at. You know, what are they good at? They're good at selling. They're good at talking to customers and then hand over the details of the order to an internal salesperson, a customer service person or internal account manager, whatever you want to call them and establish that second point of contact. So they don't just love this person. They love this person too. And then you have that relationship now established with somebody inside the company that is hopefully not also leaving if that salesperson does leave. Yeah. As much as you want someone to love you for you, they can't love you for you. (laughs) The salespeople can still have great relationships, but then they're focused on what they really like doing. I mean, salespeople in general don't love the details of the orders, right? They love the stories. They love going out and talking and they love being the rainmaker, let them be the rainmaker and have somebody else deal with some of those internal parts of the order and all the details. I feel like right now there are a lot of people that maybe want to share the risk. And so they'll say, hey, local partner, or even there are a lot of folks aging out of the industry as we talk about the great resignation and we talk about the average demographic of the promotional products industry. What can folks look at to create a better solution? where it's not just a, I'm selling you my cash flow, I'm selling you my business, because part of that transition is really the struggle, right? Making sure the customers like the new person that they're selling to. I'm looking for something where we can give some guidance in that direction. Is that something you think you Mm -hmm. could talk on? Yeah. So the question is, you mentioned transitions and you mentioned that as a really big part of selling a company. How can the buyer and the seller make that successful. Is that fair? Yeah, no, that's absolutely it. Like how can we structure transitions? So, I mean, that sounds too like the time buyout where it's a share of profit versus a straight sale. Companies, organizations that are interested in that kind of a relationship and that kind of a transition, is there anything in particular that they should be doing to prepare for that? In terms of preparing... I would say, I mean, not really. (laughs) There's nothing you can really do on the front end for the transition. The transition strategy doesn't really start until you sell. I mean, really what you want to do is you're preparing to start that transition to make sure that whoever you're transitioning to is going to be a good fit. Okay. So it's still treated as a sale, essentially. That's really It's still treated as a sale. It's just a sale over time. What I think is successful when you're doing these transitions is you have the senior salesperson, right? And then you have, you know, the buyer comes in and they buy the business, but the buyer has maybe a younger, more green salesperson. And you really develop a little bit of a mentorship there where, you know, the senior salesperson is helping the younger salesperson kind of get their feet wet. And, you know, at first the younger salesperson is getting a small percentage as part of what they're making. And that percentage increases over time until that senior salesperson then phases out. That makes sense. 
if anyone doesn't know Jamie, she's actually a lovely person. She's so sweet, so thoughtful. We'll take time for you no matter what. But I imagine there's just some people that you just want to yell at and go, you need to know this. Can you sort of pull back the curtain on your niceness and tell us what you want to yell at people about? (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah, I have started actually writing a little bit of a kind of a tough love situation for people that I think really need to hear it. And I touched on it a little bit earlier. So when you're thinking about, again, value, stop thinking about what value means to you. Start thinking about what value means to others. And by others, I mean buyers. And by buyers, I mean investors. Stop thinking about the fact that, like I said, you drive a fancy car, your business has been you know, around for 50 years because, you know, frankly, if it's been around for 50 years and it's not growing, that's a little bit of a red flag, you know, what's holding it back. And that's kind of what buyers are going to see. Stop trying to sell inventory that's over a year old, you know, stop, you know, putting your head in the sand over the fact that you're not actually making any money, that kind of stuff. That's the stuff that I, I want to tell people. We do deal with a lot of that stuff because we're in a marketing industry. So we have a lot of marketing people running companies that don't really know some of those concepts. Some of them do, and some of them do a great job. And some of them that don't are really good at hiring kind of a business manager to to handle some of that stuff. But then you do have the ones that just kind of need to hear, you know, oh, well, this company is so valuable because we have this one big customer. Oh, okay. Well, that's actually a risk, you know? So while some people do want big customers, it's a risk that all of your business is with that one customer. Or, oh, you know, I'm in this industry, but this niche is really out there and I haven't really gotten there yet, but I'm going to get there. Well, here we are again. You're trying to sell untapped potential. You can't sell untapped potential because banks don't lend on blue sky and you can't sell work that you haven't done yet. I mean, those are pretty common that we deal with. Another one is people don't really understand. They say, you know, I have this screen printing, you know, whatever, and it's really great, but it's underutilized. Well, most people are buying distributors don't want to buy screen printing equipment. I mean, at the end of the day, you're now entering into manufacturing. And if you're not great at running a business, you're not going to be great at running a manufacturing business. You know, there's a whole lot of costing in there that people just don't understand. They don't even realize that they're doing it wrong most of the time. So There are a lot of those things out there. And that's why, again, we're trying to get in on the front end and tell people, no, absolutely do not buy that giant screen printing press. You don't need it. (laughs) We really want to help people, again, just really build something of value, something that is transferable and repeatable for a buyer. So that's a big part of why we're doing that. I remember you and Joanne Lance spoke years ago at WLC for PPAI. And you said, you need to start now if you're thinking of selling your business because the average is five years. And Mm -hmm. I hope a lot of people hear that number and think it's not one of those that you see everyone else and you're just like, I'm getting out, is that it is a multi-year process to listen to Jamie's bootcamp and get your butt in order, essentially. Right. Yeah. I mean, people ask me, well, you know, when you sell a house, what do I need to do to get this house ready for sale? And it's like, well, you know, you probably should have been maintaining it all along. That's really the real, (laughs) keeping up with the trends. I mean, not that everybody's taste and everything's, you know, going to shift as often as the market trends or whatever, but 
you know, if, if your house is 30 years outdated, you're not going to get top dollar for it. So either do the updates or accept the fact that somebody's going to pay less and have to do some updates. But for crying out loud, replace the roof. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> there are some things that you cannot ignore. And the same is true for businesses. I mean, you don't want to get to the point where you're like, okay, I'm ready to retire and not have gotten evaluation, even know what it's worth or not have developed some of those best practices and ignored some, you know, pretty big issues. Like who, here's a really big one. All your salespeople are in their sixties. That's a problem. You know, that's a real problem. And we encounter it all the time, especially right now. So building a valuable company starts on day one. Yeah. Take a look at that pink pastel bathroom (laughs) and just start now. (laughs) Right. Right. That might not be for everyone. Some people might love their pink pastel. I apologize, but (laughs) right. Yeah. This has come up with a few people we've talked to is constantly be thinking of selling your business, even if you're not, because it becomes a check-in with yourself about what's working and what's not. Right. Even if you're not planning on selling it, first I would ask why, you know, are you passing it on to another generation? Well, do you want to pass them something that's not going to be financially resilient because you're just going to be passing them a big bag of trouble? You know, you don't want to do that. So if you're trying to pass on something awesome to a new generation, do it in the right way. Or if they even want it, that's where a lot of people are struggling with next generation is that oh, next generation isn't the entrepreneurial spirit. So how do you reconcile that with your retirement plans of I'll just you know, sell it to my kid. and Right. Jamie, I remember when I first started as a sales rep and I was given the advice to save every single receipt that could possibly be put against my business. So every single time I went out to lunch, every single time that I bought toilet paper, even for my home office bathroom, as long as that bathroom was the bathroom next to my home office. Where do you draw this line? Where do you think that, number one, is it still a good business practice to save all of those itemized receipts? And number two, where do you draw the line in terms of making it fuzzy for your books and it's just not worth it? It's a good question. First of all, are you still saving paper receipts? Because there is an app for that. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, okay, hold on a second. I was told we have to still keep the paper receipts in addition to the digital receipts. Is that? I believe this still, there's the seven year. Yeah. But, you know, throw them into a box, but organize them in the app so that you can reference them. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, totally. Yeah. Mine are like a box by but year yeah. and that's it. You know, yeah, it's good practice. It's certainly helpful on your taxes, you know, as long as they're legitimate business expenses. If you think that there is something that is, not going to be covered by a buyer. So what we're doing now is we're talking about normalizing your income. Normalizing is probably the best word. So maybe you run a car through the business. Well, if you sell your company, that car is not going to be part of you know the sale. That car expense is not going to be part of the buyer's expense. Just make sure you're keeping good records of those expenses. And if you have any questions about what those expenses should be, just ask somebody, ask a professional, but yeah, we do this all the time. I paid my wife and, you know, through the business and she really has kind of minimal input on what's going on. Or, you know, I run my personal vehicle through the business. You know, there's lots of things like that. Just keep good records on what it is so that when a buyer comes in and we do, we show historical income statement, 
There's your normalization, your normalized expenses. We also take things out like moving expenses or one-time expenses that are not really essential for the operations. If you sell an asset for a big loss or something, take all that stuff out. Most recently, I've been eliminating PPP loan forgiveness. So stuff like that, we take that out. Just make sure you keep track of what it is. So you know, you might have, these are my expenses that I would say they're essential to the business and they will be essential ongoing. Or these are more discretionary expenses and they fall into that discretionary category. Yeah, just keep good records of that and be able to provide that to a buyer in due diligence. That sounds awesome. So it makes sense to just go ahead and do what you think is the best in the moment, as long as you've got the records and can explain why you made the choices you made yeah. later on is what it sounds like. So with these choices, and you mentioned having a business manager previously, and I think too, in the last couple of years, we've really seen the rise of fractional executive roles in determining the vision for a company that is growing and not ready to put someone into that role exclusively. So like your fractional CMO, your fractional CFO, what are the benchmarks you would say to bringing on that business manager, whether they're full-time, whether it's fractional, or whether it's just, I'm bringing you in for a limited project basis of helping me determine, am I making the right business choices and developing strategy? What benchmarks are we looking for in terms of revenue or sales or in terms of number of people, et cetera? So I would say a pretty easy benchmark is, and, and I'm assuming you're talking about a business and not a rep that's putting their orders through a more national distributor. So like an independent business, right? which requires a more yeah. management, right? Because if you put your sales through a um, national rep, you've got some cash flow management built into that inherently that you know you don't necessarily have to worry about that. But if you're an independent business and you're doing all of your collections and all you're running the whole thing yourself, I would say about a million dollars in sales you should start looking at having somebody, even on just like a monthly basis, kind of look at your numbers, help you set some strategic goals. And that can be the case. And, you know, I think they can be really part-time at the beginning, but as you start to grow and you get up to like that $4, 5000000 million mark, that person's going to become a little bit more involved in the operations. And then I would say at the about 10 million, when you get to about 10 million, you should have someone full-time in that more like CFO role, I would say. But I think when it comes to like COO, I wouldn't say you really need a COO, but I do think you need, you know, more of a CFO type. And you're right, the fractional CFOs out there, that's a great way to get some good insight and experience without actually having to bring someone full time. Awesome. Thanks, Jamie. To kind of wrap up, I I do want to get what you see happening out in the market there, and then your thoughts on the potential of what could happen. Let's try and maybe end optimistically or else tell everyone, like, you know, just rewind a couple minutes and listen to the point of where (laughs) Jamie told you to get your house in order. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, we're definitely seeing sales rebound for sure. And I am really proud of our industry for the way that they were able to adapt the PPE, I mean, you realize not all the industries out there were doing that kind of thing. I mean, I'm really proud of our industry for adapting and doing what they needed to do to make it through what I would call the storm of 2020. So, I mean, there's a positive for you right there. I applaud our industry for that. And now I'm starting to see sales are increasing, you know, unless people are just tired and they want to sell and get out, in which case, you know, there might be some opportunities out there. 
but it's not going to be without some work, you know? So if you're looking to pick up a tired 2020, you know, company, understand that it's going to be some work for you, you know, and that's just how it's going to be. But I think going forward, things are looking really good. The market is picking up a little bit. We're seeing some M&A activity, whereas in 2020, I would say in March, everything was like just screeching halt, you know, and it stayed that way until I would say June, July, you know, we started to get some calls and people wanted to kind of pick up and restart some of their previous projects. Honestly, I think things are starting to return to normal. Just keep our fingers crossed. I mean, obviously there's no crystal ball. Nobody saw this coming. So, but just keep our fingers crossed that our industry continues down the path of evolving and keeping with all the positive trends that are out there right now. Exactly. Jamie, thank you so much for joining us and being part of our podcast series. It's my pleasure. Yeah, we loved having you. And then I wouldn't be a good chef of Promo Kitchen if I didn't plug our mentorship program. So if you're listening to this and you're just like, okay, I do have pink pastel bathroom going on, go to promokitchen.org, sign up for the mentorship program and find someone who can start to give you advice. Or if you're just like, I have advice to give, we'd love to have you there as well. And thank you for joining us. Thanks again for listening to this edition of the Promo Kitchen podcast. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, you can always get involved in the Promo Kitchen community by visiting us at promokitchen.org. You can also show your support by donating to our cause at promokitchen.org donate. We would sincerely appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you.